This episode of Outlines contains mention of eating disorders, drug abuse, and descriptions of a crime which some people may find distressing. So, as always, listener discretion is advised. Today's case begins with a grainy colour CCTV image. It's dark out, though I know already it's about 8.20 in the evening. The image is taken from a camera on the opposite side of the road looking towards Red's convenience store on St Benedict Street in Norwich. In the still photo, you can see most of the shop, illuminated by its own lights, the red painted front adding to the glow that spills out onto the pavement. Three figures are in the frame. In the background, a person looks out from the shop doorway. They're dressed in dark clothes, their face half-shadowed and half-blown out by the lights of the shop. Slightly further forward is a man with a stocky build, wearing what appears to be a beige jacket. He's carrying a bag at his side, walking forward towards the edge of the pavement, but his head is half-turned away from the direction of his feet, his eyes resting somewhere on the back of the third figure, a slender woman wearing boots with a high, chunky heel and a long black leather jacket, the kind made popular by the film The Matrix. The woman has a purposeful hunch to her shoulders, and she's caught mid-step as she walks past the store and heads towards the edge of the frame. There's something arresting about the image. It might be the colour that makes it feel like a still from a film, Taxi Driver maybe, or Paris, Texas. Or perhaps it's the sense of interaction that seems to come straight from an Edward Hopper painting. The way the camera looks slightly down on the scene. How the man with the bag appears to be eyeing up the woman. How there is a tension between all three of the people as they are captured, illuminated in the doorway, all caught in transit between one place and another. This is the last known CCTV image of 22-year-old Michelle Bettles. It's Thursday the 28th of March 2002 and she's walking towards Norwich's city centre and from there reportedly to the red light district known as the block. I know, though I cannot see in the image, that underneath her coat Michelle is wearing a red t-shirt, a red wraparound skirt and beige tights. In her pockets she carries a black hairbrush about eight inches in length, with cream bristles on one side, and a pack of Golden Virginia or Old Holman tobacco with Rizzlers and a disposable clipper lighter. She's suspended in the photograph, about to walk out of the frame, and perhaps just a few hours away from her death. Three days later, at 10.15am on the morning of Sunday the 31st of March 2002, a man named Alban Hunt was out walking his dog on Rush Meadow Road and Podmore Lane near a small village named Scarning, almost 20 miles away from the centre of Norwich. Alban would later tell the papers, Walking down the lane, I saw something red. It looked like someone had dumped a dummy, but then I could see it was a human being, and the most striking thing was her boots. Alban, shocked by the discovery, made his way home where his brother Kenneth called the police. Still dressed in her red skirt, tights, red t-shirt and boots, but 
by now missing her distinctive black leather coat, which has still never been recovered, 22-year-old Michelle had been killed by manual strangulation before being left propped up by the side of the road on the edge of a small copse. Whoever left her there had made no attempt to hide her body. The end of this month marks the 20th anniversary of the murder of Michelle Bettles, a case where the answers to what happened feel in some ways to be tantalisingly close. It's never been a crime without leads or suspects. They've just not yet led to the right person. I'm Jess Carter, and this is The Outlines Podcast. cases I covered, those of Mandy Duncan and Kelly Pratt, there was a great deal of media coverage after the discovery of Michelle's body. From what I can see, this can be attributed to a couple of different factors. The first is that it came off of the back of another case, the murder of street sex worker Hayley Curtis, whose body was found in a ditch by the side of the A3 near Petersfield in Hampshire in early January of 2002, a few months before Michelle's murder. 23-year-old Haley was reported missing at the end of December 2001, although she was last seen in mid-October of that year in an area of Norwich known as Mile Cross. Despite the fact that police soon honed in on a suspect, a man who it had been widely reported in the papers, had by that point travelled to Ireland and was being held there on unrelated assault charges. Haley's case was still very much in the forefront of people's minds when the body of Michelle Bettles was discovered. And, despite there being no known links, the papers were quick to mention that her murder was the third time in two years in which a sex worker had either disappeared, as was the case with Kelly Pratt, or been killed. In reference to this, in the first published article on Michelle's murder, printed on Tuesday the 2nd of April 2002, Chief Superintendent John Bainbridge said, We are aware that people may link this death to other incidents involving Norwich prostitutes. We understand that other prostitutes will therefore be concerned for their own welfare, we will be focusing other police activity in relevant areas of the city in an attempt to ensure that women are not at risk. There is nothing to suggest from our inquiries that there is any threat to any other member of the public. When I read this quote, I don't feel entirely comfortable. In her book Misogynies, Joan Smith talks about the case of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, and how the police's early incorrect assumption that his victims were all sex workers led to cases that we now attribute to Sutcliffe being disregarded because, as Smith says, they were the wrong type of woman, meaning they weren't sex workers or perceived to be 
to coin a term used misguidedly at the time, of loose morals. Later, as Sutcliffe continued to attack and kill, the police could no longer convince themselves that he was just preying on sex workers, and so decided to push the narrative that he had instead moved on to what they would term innocent victims. There is a famous quote from West Yorkshire detective Jim Hobson, who said, The Ripper is now killing innocent girls. When Chief Superintendent John Bainbridge said, There is nothing to suggest from our inquiries that there is any threat to any other member of the public, what he was saying is, Don't worry, we're policing the red light areas. No other women are at risk. There is a separation here be it conscious or unconscious, of women involved in sex work and those who aren't. And as we know from Sutcliffe, that assumption can, for some, be fatal. It's disappointing to see that those lessons hadn't necessarily been learned, and we have to bear in mind that they could have influenced the way the investigation into Michelle's murder was treated. While the police went out of their way to reassure some sections of the community, the newspapers were beginning to uncover details about Michelle's life. Very early on, the media seems to have discovered that her early life fit perfectly into the category of a good girl who had been led astray, a type of newspaper coverage I've mentioned previously that seems to allow the papers to focus on the victims' lives with an emphasis on who they were before they became involved in drugs and sex work. It's a type of coverage which is brilliant at prolonging the exposure that a case receives and can increase the chances of it being solved, but it's equally just as damaging to women who aren't afforded the same generosity in the papers. With Michelle, as early as Wednesday the 3rd of April 2002, just three days after her body was discovered, her mother Denise, who at the time wished to remain anonymous, but has since spoken publicly about her daughter's murder, released a written statement in which she said, Michelle was my daughter. I loved her and will miss her dearly. She was only 22 and had her whole life ahead of her. I just want the public to help the police catch whoever did this. She goes on to talk about her daughter's early life, how she was born in Norwich and attended Earlham High School. She said that she did well in her school exams, especially in languages. Her letter finishes with the line, Sometimes it's easy to mix with the wrong people, but this does not give anyone the right to take her life away. In another article, published on Wednesday the 10th of April 2002, and accompanied by photos of Michelle aged eight, 15 and 18, Denise told the papers, The public has heard that my daughter was a prostitute and a drug addict, but until people changed her life, she was a normal, happy child who loved her family as we loved her. She did well in school and could have gone on to university. Seeing the most recent picture of Michelle that had to be released by the police has really upset me. As you can see in my photographs, she was a lovely child. None of our children are safe from the evil people who deal in drugs and prostitution. I'll include the photographs on my Instagram for you all to see if you wish. Not surprisingly, perhaps, I find the picture of Michelle aged eight particularly jarring and sad. In the photo, Michelle wears a pink polka dot t-shirt and her hair, crimped in sections, is half up in a high ponytail, 
held in place by a bright red scrunchie. Michelle was born on the 15th of August 1979, and so this photograph was probably taken in 1987 or 88. But she has the slightly goofy face of a kid from any generation. When Michelle was young, the Bettles family lived in Bothorpe, a village just to the west of Norwich. And as a child, she was a keen music fan who loved Queen and Freddie Mercury. She learned how to play the clarinet and, according to a statement from Earlham High, where she attended secondary school, she had good attendance and was described as being hard-working and cooperative. Her best subjects were reportedly French, German and English, and the staff who remembered her said that she had been quiet and studious. By the time of the second photograph, aged 15, Michelle whose parents had split when she was still young, had started seeing her father John for days out, although she lived full-time with her mother. In 2019, the podcast Unfinished, produced by the Eastern Daily Press, covered Michelle in an episode entitled Michelle Bettles, Our Daughter, which I'll link in the description if anyone is interested. In the podcast... Denise Bettles spoke about Michelle's teenage years, saying, Even when she was 13 or 14, she was always ultra-thin, but that it had developed into an eating disorder, and that she discovered Michelle had been hiding food by the side of her bed. When she was 14, she started going out with boys and coming home smelling of smoke and sneaking out of windows. By the time she was 16... Things had gotten so bad that Denise asked social services to step in and Michelle was moved into a shared accommodation. By the time she was 17, she and her partner, a man named Chris Morgan, who was four years older than her and who reportedly was sidelining as a drug dealer, had their first child together, a boy, with two more, one girl and another boy, following in quick succession. Michelle and Chris's relationship was a stormy one. They would split up and then be drawn back together, and in the intermediate periods, Michelle was reportedly moved all around East Anglia to a refuge in Swaffham, a hostel in Ipswich, places in Lowestoft and Clacton, and then there were the flats all around Norwich. Neighbours of Michelle's gave interviews with the local newspapers following her death, One neighbour remembered how, in the mid to late 90s, when Michelle was around 18 or 19, she lived in a flat on Dolphin Grove in Norwich with her daughter, who was only a few months old at the time. The neighbour, Mandy Hallbritter, said, Everywhere she went there were complaints, which is why she moved around. In the year before her murder, Michelle reportedly lived in up to five different flats, as her life appears to have become more and more chaotic. It's believed that she had been involved in sex work for two years prior to her death, and by the last year of her life, she was no longer living with her children. Her heroin addiction had reportedly worsened, leaving her, what is described in one article, released at the time of her inquest, as emaciated. Her lifestyle around that time was described in the papers as troubled and precarious. Anecdotally, one neighbour, Brandon Hullett, is quoted as saying, She had a lot of blokes that kept coming round and she let them stay. 
I could hear them. It got out of hand when they started calling around at two or three o'clock in the morning. One morning, at about four o'clock, a bloke and a woman were trying to bash their way into her place. I went out and told them to clear off. She just used the flat for punters. Sometimes they used to pull up in a car with her. I didn't know she worked on the streets. I thought she had a card or a mobile phone because she had her own place. When the council's city care team came and cleared the place out the other weekend, I saw needles all over the place. This flat, the one to which she took her punters, was on Gamewell Close off of Hall Road, about a mile's walk from the red light district. The flat in which she and a man named Marcus, on whom I can find very little information, had reportedly actually been living, was above a fast food place on Deerham Road, a long street which stretches all the way from the A47, right the way into the centre of the city, where it meets up with St Benedict's Street, the street on which CCTV would capture Michelle's last movements. Some of the shop staff local to the area where she lived remembered her, with one staff member at Leon's convenience store on Deerham Road describing her as a quiet girl who came in alone to buy sweets and chocolate. The owner of Red's convenience store, outside which Michelle was last seen, said, She always looked ill and anemic. It's quite upsetting that girls of that age end up going into prostitution, and they really need help and support when they get hooked on drugs. Unfortunately, it's the way this area is, and it's really down to the city council to do something about it. Despite Michelle's growing dependence on heroin and the visible effects that the drug was having on her body, her parents have always maintained that they didn't know either about her addiction or the ways in which she was funding her lifestyle. A year after her murder, her father John spoke to the papers for the first time. He told the Eastern Daily Press about he and Michelle's last day together, saying, We walked around Magdalen Street and looked at Anglia Square and went for something to eat. We went to the market and generally had a day in the city just drifting around. You could talk to Michelle on any subject. I also believed that there was no subject she would not talk to me about. When you bring up three kids, you were always financially tight, but she never asked me for any money. He went on to say that she had always appeared to be thin and petite, and that her appearance had not given him any indication as to the direction her life had taken over the previous few years. Later, in the EDP's podcast Unfinished, her parents would elaborate on this, saying that they just weren't from a generation who knew a lot about drugs, and that they wouldn't have been looking out for the signs. Her mother also told the podcast how Michelle had a job as a cleaner, and despite her veiled references to other money-making activities and how quickly and easily she could come by some cash, Denise had no idea that her 22-year-old daughter was involved in sex work to fund her addiction to a Class A drug. It's time now to move on to Sunday the 31st of March 2002 and the start of the murder investigation. Following the discovery of Michelle's body, an incident room was established at the old police headquarters at Martineau Lane in Norwich and about a dozen officers were initially assigned to her case. 
The post-mortem was carried out on Monday the 1st of April at the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital by Home Office pathologist Michael Heath, who established that she had been strangled with someone's bare hands. According to Detective Superintendent Chris Grant, the man leading in the investigation, there was nothing to indicate that she was killed by someone who had first had sex with her, nor that her death was drugs-related, although the post-mortem did discover drugs in her system. Chris Grant told the papers at the time, The fact that she was a prostitute may indicate that sex formed a part of it, or it may not. We are pursuing forensic samples to see if there is DNA, which would be highly valuable. It transpires that there were partial DNA samples found, but only one full male profile. The first thing was to establish that this DNA wasn't linked to any other cases, especially that of Natalie Pierman, killed 10 years previously. Any connection was soon ruled out, and police focused their investigations on Michelle's acquaintances and movements on the night she disappeared, because, despite the fact that her body would not be placed at the location near Scarning for two more days, it is believed that she was killed sometime late on the evening of Thursday the 28th or early on the morning of Friday the 29th, with Detective Superintendent Chris Grant saying that he didn't believe she had been in the location where she was found for more than a few hours prior to Alban Hunt's discovery of her body. Detective Inspector Howard Marriott said... We are in a situation where we have some suggestion of her killer having local knowledge, but equally there was no attempt to conceal the body. The body had been kept somewhere after death before she was deposited, so there is an element of planning rather than a blind panic. The body had been kept somewhere it was not exposed to the elements, but it could have been his car, car boot or a building. It's difficult to establish. It transpired that on the evening of the 28th, as Michelle was walking down St. Benedict Street in the direction of the red light district, she was actually meant to be attending an appointment with a client. There were reports that she had actually prearranged two appointments, one with a local businessman and one with a taxi driver from the Thetford area. I can't corroborate these reports, but an interview from 2005 with a friend of Michelle's named Tracy Kennett revealed that after she had failed to turn up to meet a client on the night she was killed, the man had instead rebooked with Tracy. According to the Norfolk police, Michelle and this man had arranged to meet close to Deerham Road where her flat was located. It's not known whether she had a reason to avoid her appointment or if she had just chosen not to show up. But it is reported that instead of her meeting, Michelle headed into the red light district. There are what are described by police as a series of sightings around the red light district between the time she was captured on CCTV and midnight that evening. And one paper reported that she was seen at around 11 to 11.30 p.m. walking near the junction of Queen's Road and Hall Road, towards the edge of the district. It seems as though, despite these potential sightings, it's not really known what happened that evening, and up until her body was found at that remote spot near Scarning. I know I often say, 
when I do my location drives that a place is remote. And they always are. But the location where Michelle was discovered is probably the most difficult spot I visited in terms of finding the exact place. The lanes are those little country ones, not the thin, slightly ratty-looking kind with potholed passing places, but the really little ones, the deep-in-the-countryside kind where the road is pitted and half-hidden under mud and moss, the kind where you question whether or not it's even a road at all. It's not far from the A47, but still pretty inaccessible, even with ways telling you exactly where to go. It's not the kind of place you'd like to have to try and describe if you broke down, and it's also, most importantly, almost definitely not the kind of place you would turn off of the A47 and stumble upon. Most probably, Michelle's killer knew of the area before heading out to find a place to leave her body. It's about 20 miles away from the centre of Norwich, where Michelle was last seen, and a couple of miles outside of Deerham. As police thoroughly investigated the area and talked to locals, they discovered that a vehicle described as a Japanese-type 4x4 was seen speeding down Rush Meadow Road, close to the spot where her body was discovered, either on the Saturday evening or early on the Sunday morning. Detectives also studied tyre prints found at the scene, and collected samples from the area for later analysis. When analysed, these samples revealed something unusual, as by Tuesday the 21st of May 2002, it was being reported that plant materials found on Michelle's clothing did not usually grow together, nor did they come from the area where she was discovered. To help with this avenue of investigation, botanists were employed to assist detectives in pinpointing any sites in the area where the plant matter might be found together. Detective Inspector Howard Marriott said, There is some evidence of plants growing in an unusual combination, and that could be from a park or garden. It could just be a concentration of these plants in close proximity, but this is another area where science may be helpful. Some of this debris or pollen could have been transferred from plants either in a vehicle or building. We know she did not die at the deposition site. Most likely, she was kept somewhere protected from the elements after she was killed and before the body was taken to Scarning. Either she was taken somewhere outside, killed there and picked up some of the evidence there, though she would not have been there for any length of time, or she picked up these materials after being stored near these plants or a vehicle. Following this line of inquiry, it was reported on Wednesday the 14th of August 2002 that detectives and a pollen expert from English Nature had pinpointed a location near the area where Michelle's body was discovered that contained the unusual plant combinations. The property, a farmhouse on the outskirts of Deerham, was reportedly known to have associations with drugs and sex work. The owner was a man in his 50s who struggled with alcoholism and had lost his wife and his job. It was reported that the pollen found in Michelle's hair, which linked her to the farmhouse, had been there for a relatively short period before her death. But there was never any evidence that the man was involved in Michelle's murder, and as far as I can ascertain, Without evidence, he was never considered a viable suspect for arrest, though extensive investigations were carried out on the farm. 
it was claimed, but cannot be substantiated, that Michelle had previously visited the farmhouse, and despite the matching plant matter, it could never be proved that the samples came from there, and not from multiple locations. Before this lead, however, there had been another suspect. This was a 49-year-old man named John Benson. John, who lived at Normandy Tower in Rouen Road in the centre of Norwich's red light district, had reportedly been overheard in the weeks following Michelle's death, bragging about getting revenge for money she owed him. As early as Saturday the 4th of May, it was being reported that John had been questioned and released on bail, which was extended to the 29th of June to allow more time for Forensic Science Service Laboratory in Huntingdon to carry out more tests. On the 1st of July, John Benson actually gave an interview to the papers in which he claimed, I didn't kill her. I have got a very violent record, but I haven't been in trouble for some time, and I've never hit a woman. John, who was curiously and without evidence described as a part-time stand-up comedian in the article, admitted that Michelle had previously visited his flat and that he had had sexual relations with her, but claimed he'd never paid her for sex, saying, I was absolutely shocked when I learned, absolutely stunned. She didn't deserve to die. She was a pleasant, intelligent girl. Later in the article, he confessed that he had known some of the sex workers in the area and that he'd even allowed some of them to spend time in his home before he'd moved into the Rouen Road flat, though he claimed he had banned them after discovering that they were taking drugs there and was adamant that he had nothing to do with drug dealing. I think it's pretty well established that John Benson was not involved with Michelle's death and just liked to run his mouth a bit although he was by all accounts a pretty nasty man. In an article in 2005, his death was reported in the following way. There were no suspicious circumstances, though he had been due to face eviction and to appear in court on charges of having an offensive weapon and using threatening behaviour. So, that's two suspects so far, one linked through his own bragging and the other through vegetation. After the man with the unusual pollen combination had been identified, police continued to look for leads and to try to establish other men with whom Michelle, who had been working in the area for two years, might have had contact with. By the 1st of February 2003, it was being reported that only about 20 men with whom she'd had relations in her capacity as a sex worker had been spoken to by the police. They were still looking to question what is quoted as being several hundred people with whom Michelle or other women in the area may have had associations with. Despite the high number of men still being sought, by August 2003, almost a year and five months after her murder, that number had only gone up to what Superintendent Martin Wright, who was by that point leading the investigation, called 30 men. Despite the lack of men willing to come forward to say they'd been with Michelle, one man in particular had been identified as a person of interest. This unnamed 30-year-old, who was local to the Norwich area, was picked up by the police on the 26th of March 2003, close to the first anniversary of Michelle's death. He was reportedly questioned at length at Thetford Police Station 
and released on bail, which was, in May of 2003, extended for another three months. The man in question was reportedly the son of a retired police officer, whose name had first come up during a trawl of car registration plates held by the vice squad. The owner of the car was contacted, and he insisted he'd never frequented the block, but told police that his daughter's boyfriend also had access to the car. This was the unnamed 30-year-old, who quickly became a very viable suspect, because on voluntarily providing police with a mouth swab, it came back as a perfect match to what was reportedly the only full male DNA profile found on Michelle's body. To begin with, the man denied having ever been with Michelle, but later changed his story to say that on the evening of Tuesday the 26th of March 2002, two days before Michelle was last seen alive, he was out for a night with friends before feeling unwell and cutting the evening short. As he drove home, he claimed to have seen Michelle on the pavement, and despite reportedly never having been with a sex worker before, he decided to pick her up. He told police that he took her back to his home where she performed what is described as a sex act on him, before he called her a cab and she returned to the block. This story was in part corroborated by a taxi driver who picked out Michelle's photo from a lineup of 12 sex workers. He claimed that he remembered her because she'd given him a £20 note to cover a £13 journey, and then had dropped another 20 quid in the back of his cab before getting out. Despite the man's claims that he'd never paid for sex before that evening, police knew that he was lying, saying to the paper in 2005, we'd placed a lot of faith in DNA, and of course, once we had established a link between him and her a couple of days before, we could never eliminate him. It was conclusive that he'd been with her on the Tuesday, but he had lied repeatedly. But his version of events for the Thursday night was that he had gone to bed alone with a migraine. The migraine story could never be confirmed or ruled out, despite the fact that his mobile phone records reportedly showed that he'd made a large number of calls on the night she disappeared. The location of those calls could never be pinpointed, and with the chance that the DNA could have transferred from him to her on the Tuesday evening, and with no more evidence forthcoming, he's never been charged with anything. I know that this episode has had an awful lot of detail to unpick, and the timeline isn't always clear, but it boils down to the fact that at some point on the evening of Thursday the 28th of March 2002, or early on the morning of Friday the 29th, Michelle was killed and her body stored somewhere for two days before being found 20 miles away from Norwich, in a remote area of countryside. She was missing her long leather coat, but otherwise was dressed exactly as she, as she had been the night she vanished. And despite three suspects, two of whom could be forensically linked to Michelle, no one has ever been charged with her murder. In March of 2005, almost three years after the murder took place, the inquest into her death was finally concluded, and Coroner William Armstrong recorded a verdict of unlawful killing. Speaking afterwards to the waiting press, her mother Denise reiterated that what had happened to Michelle was not a standalone event, saying, She had three children herself, and they are lost. 
They don't have a mother now. It could happen to anyone. They get started with something they can't stop and have to get the money from somewhere. I just hope and pray it never happens to anyone else. It is so easy for people to see their children and not realise they're on drugs. But if they think that so, then, for heaven's sake, do something. The end of this month will mark 20 years since Michelle was killed. And over that time, her parents have continued to raise awareness in the hopes that new evidence or witnesses will emerge. Unlike so many of the cases I cover, there is a real chance that the person who killed Michelle Bettles is out there somewhere, perhaps still in the same area. Maybe he feels remorse, and maybe he doesn't, and maybe he's admitted something in the previous 20 years and someone has hidden his secret for all that time, and maybe he hasn't. Regardless, there is still real hope that in Michelle's case there can be a resolution, and one day her killer will be brought to justice so that her parents and her children will finally have answers. In the words of her father, she is dead, and there is an end to the story, but there is a chapter missing. Thank you as always for listening to Outlines. If you like what I do and you want to contribute to the show, you can do so as always at www.patreon.com forward slash the outlines podcast or by donating via paypal to the outlines podcast at gmail.com my thanks to those of you who have done so in the past month including new patrons reuben higgins and ian jezzard i know things are tight at the moment but with rising fuel and living prices your donations really do enable me to carry on visiting locations and bringing you the most in-depth research that i can this month's patreon exclusive will be out on friday and after that there's just one more episode for the norfolk series left to go before i begin again in a new county thank you as always for listening to outlines This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. 